Morning. How are we doing, 11 o'clock? Oh, my goodness. It is going to get rowdy. Hey, welcome to the Church at Rocky Peak. My name is uh, Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, happy Father's Day to my fellow dads out there. May there be a lot of red meat in your future, dads. That would be... That would be a glorious thing. By the way, if you're a Kings fan, you're having a pretty good weekend, aren't you? Or if you're like me, you're a bandwagon fan that's pretending to have a good weekend. So it's good. But regardless, we're glad that you're here. Whether you're here in the Interim Worship Center or you're joining us via video on the Summit. Hi, Summit. Uh, we're going to continue our time of teaching right now. So inside your program, there is a message note sheet, uh, which is going to be a great tool to help you follow along. And I'm going to go ahead and pray and get started. Fathers, we've been continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. The one fundamental truth that has come up time and time again is the fact that Jesus is King. And I pray that as we continue to dive into your word, that for us, that this truth is not, is not something we become numb to, but that that truth start to inform the rest of our lives. I ask that you continue to spark a passion and a fire in us because of your word, which is living and active that we continue to see in a much bigger way what it means that Jesus is our king. Father, today as we celebrate dads, we want to stop and celebrate our ultimate father. We want to thank you for loving your children. We want to thank you for fighting, your, fighting for your children. We want to thank you for being a truly perfect king of all kings. And today, let us show our gratitude by how we, uh, by how we just allow you to change us. In your son's name, we all said, amen. All right, so about two years ago, I got jury duty. I didn't just get jury duty, I got put on an actual trial. Now, like many of you, I'm sure, when I first got that letter in the mail, I wasn't exactly thrilled. But you know what, having served on a trial gave me a deeper appreciation for it. It was actually pretty fascinating to see the legal process, to see how the legal process works uh, firsthand. And coming out of it, I have a deeper appreciation for anybody whose profession has to deal with laws and courts and all that. But there was one thing that I was expecting that didn't end up, uh, that ended up not happening, and that was this. See, I went into my jury service coming off of a steady diet of law and orders and multiple... (laughs) and multiple viewings of a few good men. So I came in going, this is going to be a fight. It's going to be spicy. I was ready to duck a chair or a table or something. And you know what was such a bummer to me? It was completely civil. They were really nice to each other. It wasn't like this aggressive objection or anything. They were even at the end, the, the competing attorneys shook each other's hands. I'm like, what is that about? Now I'm sure... I'm sure there is some spiciness in some courtroom drama, but it's the outlier and not the norm. And the reason I bring it up is because today we're going to be looking at the second trial that Jesus faced before he went to the cross. And if you look at both of these trials, these real-life accounts are a Hollywood dream. Because in both of these trials, we see drama, misplaced passion, violence, political corruption. It is the most chaotic circus you can imagine. And in the middle of it is Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at the first trial. Today, we're going to be looking at the second one. But before we do that, again, if you're brand new, I not only want to welcome you again, but I want to take a few minutes just to bring you up to speed in our series. Since about the beginning of this year, we've been in a series, you see it on the screens, called Jesus the Crucified King. Now this series is actually the third in what I've been calling an epic trilogy of series, where we've been going, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Now Mark, the author, was a key leader in the early movement of Jesus. And he was also a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter, who was one of the original 12 men that walked with Jesus. And so what we have in Mark's gospel is he's writing down Peter's firsthand eyewitness account of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Now in this last series, the focus has been on the last week of Jesus' life, starting with his return into Jerusalem and ending with his death and resurrection. And what we've seen in this series is that Jesus has been revealing his true identity as the Messiah, and that has brought him into some heavy direct conflict with the religious leaders, or as I call them, the religious establishment at the time. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their status, and they wanted to find a way to remove him. Now, about a month ago, we saw 
saw that this tension finally exploded. And so to really set us up for our passage today, I got to do that 24-esque recap and go previously in Mark's gospel. If you remember a few weeks ago, Jesus was in Gethsemane and Jesus was betrayed by Judas and he was arrested. And then Mike picked up that cliffhanger and we saw that Jesus in the middle of the night was placed on his first trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council of the time. Now this was in the middle of the night. And try to picture this, Jesus is standing in this courtroom facing 70 some odd senators representing the Jewish ruling nation. And they are accusing him. They are saying many malicious things about him. And what is Jesus doing? He's silent. He's just sitting there taking it all in until... They ask him a very simple yet profound question. Are you the Messiah? And do you remember Jesus' answer was right to the point? I am. And the trial turned into a riot. You need to picture this scene that it wasn't this calm, serene courtroom like I described at the beginning, but the religious establishment lost their minds. Mark tells us that the chief priest ripped his clothes, which in that culture was the sign of the highest disgust, distress, and outrage. We're told that they started spitting and beating Jesus. We're told that the guards joined in on this beating and began mocking him. And then Mark does what he so often does in his gospel. He leaves us on a cliffhanger. See, Mike pointed out last week that Mark often tells two stories at once. So picture it as a camera A and a camera B. And so what happens is we're left with this riot on the courtroom floor that Jesus is in the middle of, and Mark immediately cuts to camera B, which was last week, and it was Peter's denial. And if you missed it, let me encourage you to podcast that message as Mike, as Mike exposed those powerful words and Peter and what they mean for us. But what's going to be happening today is we're going to be going back to camera A, and we're going to be picking things up immediately where we left it. And so the Sanhedrin has declared that Jesus must die because to them, he committed the highest crime possible, blasphemy. He declared himself as God, and they were not going to stand for it. But they had a problem. See, while the Sanhedrin had some jurisdiction, they did not have the authority to execute someone, to pass out a death sentence, because they were under Roman rule. So if they wanted Jesus to die, he needed to have a guilty verdict verdict come from a Roman court. And so what we're going to see as we pick up in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is going to be bound like a common criminal. They are going to transport him, and I speculate they didn't transport him gently, and they are going to take him before the Roman governor who's in charge of the region of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located, and this is a man named Pontius Pilate. And so if you've got your Bibles, this is where we're going to jump in. Open it up to Mark chapter 15, or if you've got your apps, turn them on. There in your note sheet, if you're following along, there's a section titled, The Roman Governor. Hey, we made it out of chapter 14. All right. Probably be in chapter 15 for the next six months, but it'll be fun. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 15. Very early in the morning, so think about dawn, and actually this was when Roman courts tended to open. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now let's stop right there. Because something that we can miss as we just do a cursory glance of this scripture is the fact that the Jewish leadership and Pilate had a lot of tension between them. There was a lot of animosity that really informs our story today. And so what I want to do is I want to paint a picture of this animosity. And to do that, it would help if we had a little bit of a historical picture of who Pilate was. And so Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea, like I've mentioned. This was actually a well-sought-after position. And Pilate had high friends in the right places and got the job. Pilate was appointed under the Rome of, C- uh, excuse me, under the rule of C- Caesar Tiberius, and Pilate held that position for somewhere between 10 and 11 years. Now, historically, we know that there were 14 governors that held that role, and Pilate held it longer than anybody else. Now, Pilate had an interesting reputation. He had a reputation for being an official that was difficult to manage. When we look When we look at what historians had to say about Pilate, they describe him as being strong-willed, 
as being very sure of himself, as being very independent. And they also use this word, brutal. Often, and we see this in one of the other gospel accounts, Pilate shows brutality over diplomacy when it came to dealing with the Jews. So you start to see where the animosity is coming from. Now, the reason why Pilate is in Jerusalem is because it's Passover. Pilate usually resided in Caesarea, which was a port city on on the Mediterranean, about 70 miles from Jerusalem. But it's Passover, and if you remember, by some estimates, there were 10 times the population of Jerusalem because of this festival. And so the Roman government was on edge because they didn't want any type of uprising or riots. They know how the Jews felt about them. So they would send their heavy hitters over to Jerusalem. And so Pilate is here. He's likely in Herod's old key, old palace, which is on the western mount of the city. And Pilate has one job above all else. Keep the peace. Whatever it takes, no riots, no uprising. Make sure that this festival goes, out, goes on without a hitch. Now let's talk about the animosity. Pilate did not have a high view of the Jews, let alone a high view of their leadership. And in turn, they did not have a high view for him because he disregarded their religion, their cultures, and their customs. We see in these accounts that Pilate did many things that would enrage the Jewish nation. One example is that Pilate decided to build an aqueduct, and to fund it, he took the money out of the temple treasury. And if you're a Jew, you don't mess with the temple, let alone to add to Roman infrastructure. But another example that jumps out to me, the historians Josephus and Philo talk about the story that Pilate introduced images of Caesar, statues and banners, if you will, into Jerusalem, the holy city. And he also introduced images of Caesar into the Jewish military. So imagine a Jewish soldier having an image of Caesar on his, on his shield. Well, this was a huge offense to the Jews because coming out of, the, out of the Old Testament laws, they had very strict rules against graven images. In fact, Jews could not use Roman money at the temple because it had an image of Caesar. And so this was a huge offense. So a large group of Jews made the 70-mile trek to Caesarea and staged a five-day nonviolent protest. On the fifth day, Pilate had had it, and he ordered his soldiers, kill him. And Josephus tells us that as the soldiers moved in with their knives and swords ready to kill these Jews, that they gladly bared their necks and said, we would rather die than break the laws of our God. And you know what's unique? Pilate backed down. He didn't kill them, and he removed the images out of Jerusalem. And so it paints a very complicated picture of Pilate, doesn't it? That while he was brutal and while he was a corrupt politician, especially by Roman standards, he wasn't the most brutal He wasn't the most corrupt person. And it's those glimmers of hope that we're actually going to see a little bit in our story today. But before we jump back in, given the view that the Jewish establishment have of Pilate, does this not deeper inform the disdain and the desperation the Jewish leaders had that they needed to go to Pilate and needed his help to get Jesus out of the picture? So you feel there's a lot of tension in this situation. So let's pick up in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many other things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Say what we will about the religious establishment, but one thing is that they weren't stupid. And they knew that bringing Jesus before Pilate with a charge of theological blasphemy was going to get them nowhere. Rome could care less about their religion and their religious rules. So giving him a religious argument, wasn't Pilate would have thrown them out of court. So what they needed to do is they needed to present Jesus as a physical threat to the empire of Rome. And so we see that the religious leaders described Jesus to Pilate as a king. They introduced the king language, and it says in Mark that they accused him of many things. In Luke's account, he actually expands on this a little bit, that the religious leaders accused Jesus accused Jesus of, uh, you, of uh, subverting the peace, meaning started riots, starting riots, 
They accused Jesus of encouraging people not to pay their taxes to Caesar, and they accused him of being a physical king in defiance of Caesar. So think about this. As a politician, you are sitting in, in judgment of somebody who's been accused of terrorism, tax evasion, and treason. So now you would have to listen to those charges because those are a heavy charge. But we even get a sense in Mark's account that Pilate doesn't seem convinced. And in fact, did you catch Jesus' response to Pilate? He asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And how did Jesus respond? You have said so. If I were to paraphrase that response, Jesus is basically saying, well, it's a yeah, but situation. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is acknowledging that he is a king. But he's also saying, I'm not the king I'm being accused of. I'm not this physical king a lot of people thought I was or expected myself to be. My kingship is much bigger than you or anyone else can possibly imagine. And so what I want to do to kind of clarify this point further is I want to take a little field trip, if you will. I want to jump over into John's gospel. Because in John's gospel, he actually expands this conversation between Jesus and Pilate a little bit. And so what I've done is I've actually put excerpts of it in your note sheet. So there on your note sheet, let's see a little bit of this conversation there. So reading from your note sheet, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? And that's been a core principle in Mark's gospel, hasn't it? That we've been trying to figure out, people have been trying to figure out, what kind of king is Jesus? And so we're going to see Jesus defines it as we skip down into that next paragraph. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent, to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. So if we jump down to that third section, with this, Pilate went out again to the Jews, gathered, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now that's unique perspective, isn't it? So if we jump back to Mark, then we see based on what John tells us that as Pilate is questioning Jesus, he's sitting there going, this man is not guilty. This man is not a threat. And that informs that, verse, that word in verse 5 that Pilate was amazed. Now, the Greek word in that is thaumezo. Now, when we say he's amazed, it's not an exciting, I just saw a magic act. Wow, that's amazing. But from that Greek word, we get surprised and confused. See, Pilate is legitimately stupefied. He's seeing Jesus' innocence, and he kept asking repeatedly, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus didn't say anything. And Pilate is confused because he's going, do you understand the charges that they've brought against you? Do you understand that you are accused of treason and this could lead in your death? Say something. We get it in the subtext that Pilate is sitting there. He's trying to prod Jesus because if Jesus would say something, then in Pilate's head, they could probably poke holes in the trial and this would all be over. But Pilate is looking at somebody that he thinks is innocent and doesn't understand why he's not defending his own innocence. But here's the question I want to ask. If Pilate is confused why Jesus isn't defending his innocence, why isn't Pilate saying anything? If he sees innocence in Jesus, why isn't he defending and taking a stand for him? Hold on to that question. I'm going to come back to that later. And so Pilate is trying to put the burden on Jesus to defend himself, and it's not happening. So Pilate doesn't seem very uncomfortable with an innocent man going to death in this case. And so he's got another idea. It was customary that at Passover the Roman governor would release a criminal, would give him amnesty, and it would be somebody of the crowd's choice. And so Pilate knew that sitting in jail, they had a murderer named Barabbas. So Pilate's thought is, well, clearly, if I present the crowd with a choice, they're going to pick this harmless prophet instead of a murderous man named Barabbas. And what we're going to see is that Pilate, like so many of us do when you read the story, not only misjudged who Barabbas was, but he misjudged how the people viewed Barabbas. So let's continue to read. 
starting at verse 6, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And so we've got this crowd that has formed. And this is likely a mixed crowd. See, Roman trials were commonly a public affair and you had people looking. But based on the request we see in Mark, I'm willing to bet that a majority of the crowd had come because they wanted to plead for the amnesty of a prisoner. Now, we talk about Barabbas. And for a lot of us that know the story, we know that Barabbas is a murderer, right? But we often miss the description that Mark gives him what kind of a killer Barabbas was. See, Mark described him as an insurrectionist, meaning that Barabbas was murdering Romans in hopes to overthrow the Roman Empire. So if you are an oppressed Jew to many oppressed Jews, this man is fighting the evil empire. And so where Pilate misjudged is many of these people, this crowd that had come to plead for the release, it's very likely that they already came being pro-Barabbas because to them, he was a freedom fighter, and to many, he was probably considered a hero. See, in this day and age, if you see people that have images uh, and faces of leaders that they consider the anti-establishment leaders or the let's fight against the man leaders, you might see shirts or decals with somebody like a Che Guevara or somebody with the Guy Fox mask that's been popularized from V for Vendetta. Well, if they had those type of images on their clothing then, it's likely that it would have been Barabbas. And so you see that the religious leaders started inciting a crowd. My guess is that they didn't have to work too hard to do it. But also, you got to understand the vigor of the religious leaders. They had made it this far. They are so close to getting the death sentence for Jesus that they want, and they're not going to let Pilate's hesitation stop them. And so this is pure speculation on my part, but I would imagine they would be in the crowd going, of course we want Barabbas. Barabbas fights for us. Barabbas cares for us. If Barabbas gets released, he's going to continue to fight the good fight for our freedom. What has this Jesus done? Nothing. And so think about groupthink and group mentality. People are like, yeah, 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 we want Barabbas. And we see that once again, Pilate is dumbfounded. This is not the response he expected. In fact, when he told the crowd, do you want the king of the Jews? He didn't use that title in a mocking sense. He thought it would endear him to Jesus Jesus to the crowd. And so Pilate doesn't know what to do at this point. So then we see Pilate ask the question as we continue reading. Verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now this is very, very unique. In one sense, because we see in the other Gospels that Pilate was hoping to physically punish Jesus in some way, but to let him go. In fact, in one of the other accounts, he says something along those lines. What if we just punish him and then we let him go? Then it's all been paid, right? But the crowd, in this part, more than likely very much encouraged by the religious leaders are shouting, crucify him. Now, what's very unique to this is this is a Jewish crowd. See, from Deuteronomy, the Jews believed that if you died on a pole or a tree by being hung on one of those two, that you were cursed. And so even in Jewish laws to where they allowed certain forms of execution, any type of being hung on a pole or a tree, crucifixion, was not allowed. It is a huge deal that the religious leaders were asking for this type of death because they want to put an exclamation point on the end of their plan. Because if Jesus died through crucifixion, then he would be labeled a treasonous enemy of the state. But to them, that's how they viewed him too. He was a threat to them and he was blasphemous. And they wanted Jesus now and forever known for everybody in all of history to look back on Jesus' death and go, he was a cursed man who died as a traitor. 
if you ask people now why Jesus died, we have the, we've seen the complete story. And so we would say, well, Jesus died for our sins, right? And that is a very true answer. But if you ask people then why Jesus died, the response would be treason. He was an enemy of the state and of the religious establishment. And that wasn't a title they just handed out. That was a grave title. And that is what they were asking for. And so again, Pilate is dumbfounded by this. They're asking for crucifixion. And as we look at our last verse for today, verse 15, what does Pilate do? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. See, Pilate, again, doesn't fully understand what's happening, but we see that Pilate also doesn't seem to be willing to take a stand. He keeps trying to put the burden of Jesus' release on other people, whether it's Jesus or the crowd. In fact, I have it there on your note sheet that Pilate, like one of the most famous images of Pilate from Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar were starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Now, next week, Mike is going to pick up and talk about the flogging and the torture that Jesus endured on his way to the cross. But what I want to do as we transition out of our passage with the time we have left is I want to examine Pilate himself, and specifically, I want to examine his reaction and response to Jesus. Because remember, I've been asking that question, Pilate was the governor. He had the power to do something, and he saw innocence in Jesus, yet he didn't. And so the million-dollar question is, well, then why? Why was he silent in the face of injustice, so to speak? And so out of this passage, what I've done is I've pulled two truths out of it. The first truth is one that Pilate realized about Jesus. The second truth is one that Pilate completely missed. And so there on your note sheet, you have a section titled, Examining Pilate's Response. And your first fill-in is this. Following Jesus comes with a cost. Following Jesus comes with a cost. All right, so I'm not good at many things in life, but one thing I am very good at is eating absurd amount of food that is bad for you, yet is delicious. <laughs> I've mentioned this up here before, donuts, hamburgers, those hamburgers that have donuts instead of the buns. <laughs> Don't judge it until you try it, people. <laughs> I've been this way as long as I can remember. And ever since I was a teenager, I always knew something to be true. I am going to die young. Well, I'm a father now. I have two kids and it, it dawned on me, I think I would enjoy watching my kids grow up and to be there for the milestones in their life. And so a big way to ensure that happens is I need to change the way I eat. I need to change my habits. So I remember I was talking to my wife about this because she's much better at this than I am. And I'm like, what do we do? And so she gave me a list and she sent me to Whole Foods. <laughs> it was as if I landed on Mars. I'm walking around discovering things I didn't know existed, such as kale, <laughs> something called quinoa, which is not pronounced how it's spelled, people, <laughs> lettuce, all of these things that I'm not familiar with. I filled up my little bags. I came home and I was so excited. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to live for my kids. This is going to be great. Friends, full confession time. I made it half a day. And you know why I made it half a day? Because kale is gross. <laughs> Unequivocally gross. And for those of you that would say, no, it's not, I am tired of your kale propaganda. It is gross, okay? But here's the reality. My, like, I quit. I'm like, you know what? Whatever, I'm just going to die. And that's a horrible attitude, isn't it? It is absolutely horrible. But here's the reason why I share this confession is because there are so many things in life, whether we revolve around our health or our family or different areas in our life that are good things for us, that are even possibly the best things for us. And there's so many areas that we want the end goal. But when we see the cost to get there, we're intimidated and say, nope, the cost is too high. 
Now to bring this to our passage, actually to bring this to the whole series we've been in, we have seen this theme in Mark's gospel many a time, have we not? That following Jesus comes with a cost. See, sometimes we want to believe that Jesus coming into our lives means he's going to fold up nice and neat and fit into our schedules and he's not going to rock the boat or change anything. But the reality, and this is the whole gospel of Mark, is that Jesus is king. And when the king comes back for his people, that changes everything. And one of the big changes it has in our lives is before we gave our lives to Jesus, we weren't kingless, we did have a king. It just wasn't Jesus. See, when sin came into our lives, it wrecked everything. It changed our focus. It distorted our view. We were created to be a people with a king. But sin convinced us that we are king makers. And so we started giving that throne to many other things of various shapes and sizes in our lives. And when I use the word king, what I mean is that we started declaring things king that we feel are going to give us ultimate value, worth, and our very identity. There's many of us that our false kings have been the pursuit of status, have been perceived power, have been what other people think of me, have been what's on my business cards or what's in my garage. There's many of us that our false king has been a type of relationship in our life, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's even a family relationship, but something where we go, hey, this relationship is going to give me ultimate identity, ultimate value, and that salvation which I so want. There's many of us that our king has been some kind of addiction, has been some kind of fix, has been some kind of sin that we've kept hidden from everybody else. There's many of us that our king has been fear, that we base our whole lives around the fact that we are terrified. We're terrified of something happening to us, of something happening to our kids, and so we just create these giant bomb shelters and never live because we're afraid. For many of us, especially in the Western world, our false king is comfortability. We want to do whatever it takes to live a life where there's no waves, where nothing rocks the boat. And if you were with me a few weeks ago, we talked about hardship, did we not? And we could go on and on and on. But the reality is that we've been fooled into making kings out of everything else except for Jesus. And when Jesus came into this world in a big way, he redefined what it meant to have a king, to be a people that were subject to a king. And he made it very clear there is only one king in this world, and it is Jesus. But to follow him, there is a cost. And there are specific costs for each and every one of us, but in a big picture way, the cost to leave our false kings and to go after the true king means leaving behind our notion of identity, success, and the best life possible. Or let me put it this way. The cost of following Jesus means giving up the notion that I am the ultimate authority in my life and submitting to my one true king. And for many of us, that is a high cost. And we wrestle with that, do we not? For some people, Jesus sounds really, really good. But the cost is just too high. And we actually see that in Pilate. Why didn't Pilate stand up for Jesus even though he saw innocence? Because he had another king. He had another high value. Do you remember in the Matthew scripture we saw that there was the word uproar? When Pilate saw an uproar, what was Pilate's number one job during Passover? Peace. If he didn't give the crowd what they wanted, most likely Pilate was going to have a riot on his hands. That means Pilate is probably going to lose his job. There was something about Jesus that was intriguing, into, intriguing to him. There was innocence that he saw. But the idea of losing his identity, which was his job, the job that he had, he had backstabbed, that he had wanted and pursued and now had and was going to protect at all costs. Because we see historically that at this point, Pilate was already on thin ice. He had lost a lot of political allies, and so he's not going to lose his identity. And so to Pilate, the cost of pursuing Jesus, even exploring Jesus more, was too high. And he missed out. But you know what's, un what's the most unfortunate thing about our false kings are? They're temporary. Every last one of our false kings is temporary. Eventually, things change. 
If our false king was a type of relationship, well, that changes. If our false king was a type of status or substance, well, they abandon us and they leave us. Whatever it may be, the one truth about any false king is that a false king is temporary. And eventually, when we're left and abandoned by our false king, if that is where we found our source of identity, we're left wondering, well, who am I? And that's a crushing place to be, is it not? And that's the problem of fake kings. And that's the pilot principle, if you will, that I want to pull from our scripture. See, pilot is did what so many of us do. That when it comes to Jesus, all he focused on, the only thing he saw was what he would lose or miss out on. All he saw was the cost. He was clinging on to a false king rather than embracing the one true king of kings. And so you know this takes, this takes root form in many different ways. There are many people in life that sit there and go, you know what, this Jesus thing and this church stuff, you know what, I do actually think it's all legit, but Dre, I'm going to be honest, I don't want to change my life. To them, the cost is too high. Or there's many Christ followers that we sit there and go, Dre, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love what he's all about. And he's got 80% of my life. But there's this one area or this one or two areas where I'm holding on to, where this is where I find these fulfillments or it's a sin nobody knows about, or this is where I really hang my hat on. And I know Jesus is asking for this area, but I don't want to give it because it's just too high. So he's getting 80%. That's a B. That's not too bad. I'm going to hang on to this. And we are missing out because, again, we are doing the mistake that Pilate did, that our sole focus is only on what we're going to lose, that we don't see the genuine, amazing truth of what we receive when we follow Jesus. And that leads me to the second truth. This is the truth that Pilate completely missed out on. And your fill-in is this, following Jesus is what leads to true life. Following Jesus is what leads to true life. So I'm going to steal a story a friend of mine shared to a group many, many years ago. See, back then, he had two boys, and they were young. And he was so excited because he was going to surprise his boys in a big way. He was going to take them to Disneyland. And while he lived in California, he lived farther away than we do, so this was a very rare treat. And so he had been building up, telling him, hey, daddy's going to take you somewhere amazing on Saturday. You're going to be so shocked and surprised. So the day comes, he's so excited because, come on, dad, this is a great way to score points, right? He gets him in the car, and not long after they take off, the boys start chanting and demanding, we want to go to McDonald's. (laughs) And he's sitting there going, why do you want to go to McDonald's? Like, we want chicken nuggets. And any parent of a small kid, man, the way chicken nuggets grab onto the soul of a kid is pretty shocking. But they're also like, we want to play. We want to run around in those playgrounds. And so he's sitting there going, okay, well, we're we're not going to stop at McDonald's because we're going to go somewhere amazing. And their response was, we don't want to go there. We want to go to McDonald's. And so, again, he's trying to talk logic with his kids, which all parents know that never works. And he's sitting there going, no, no, you don't understand. This place is so much better. There's nothing better than McDonald's. (laughs) McDonald's is the place we don't care about. We don't care about that place. Wherever you go, and he's like, no, I I don't want to spoil the surprise, but trust your dad. Trust me. And they went on and on and on, and finally, he relented. He gave them what they wanted. They went to McDonald's. And then he took them home. Now, based on our reactions, (laughs) I think we'd all be in agreement that those kids missed out, right? I would hope that not a one of us would think that Disneyland is worse than McDonald's. (laughs) Although McDonald's has a more competitive price, I'll give you that. (laughs) But what were those kids doing? They were so focused on what they were going to lose that they didn't want to entertain the thought of what they were going to get. Now, as an adult, I like to think of myself as smarter than a child. (laughs) But the longer I live, the reality is I start realizing, no, I'm not. Because in a very serious sense, do you see that we are those kids when it comes to God? Do you see that we have a loving father 
He says, Dre, I, I want you to experience an incredible life. I want you to trust me in this. And what I do, no. No, uh, no, no, no. I know what's going to lead me to the best life possible, and it's not what you want. It's not always clear what you want. You tell me to trust you. No, I'm going to do this. No, but Dre, I, I love you. I'm for you. Like, trust me. I'm going to lead you to something better than you could ever imagine. No, I don't care. Do you see how we do this? See, we're focused on the cost. And why are we focused on the cost? Why am I focused on the cost? Because I am prideful. Because in my head, I am convinced no one, not even Jesus, knows what's best for me better than me. And it sounds kind of absurd saying it out loud, doesn't it, that me as a finite created being argues with the infinite king of kings over what's best for me, yet I do it. Yet we do it. And do you know why I do it more often than not? Because I'm only focused on the cost. I'm only focused on what I'm going to lose or what I'm going to miss out on that I'm not focused on what I'm going to get. That was the mistake we make and that's the mistake the pilot make. And do you know what we miss out on? We miss out on the fact that when we follow Jesus, we get life. Life begins in Jesus. Life in this world and the next begins in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. And so when all I do is look at the cost, I miss out on the fact that following Jesus, what do I get back? Well, he makes me alive. And what I realize is that sometimes I need help. I need God's help to remind me of this truth. I need God's help for some of us to show me this truth for the very first time. I need God to help me see past this giant cost that's blocking my vision into the truth that he gives life. The Apostle Paul talks about this theme in Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he talks about how we choose these false kings, but he puts it in very blunt language that we don't choose from a multitude of kings. When we choose a false king, in reality, we've chosen the kingdom of the enemy. We've chosen the wrong side. And because of that, because of that sin, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're not sick, we're not slowly dying. It says because of our sin, we're dead. And that'd be a bummer place to end. But he goes on in chapter 2 and he says, but our perfect king, Jesus, even though we had picked the opposing kingdom, Jesus came to give us life, to make us alive. If we go back to Barabbas, do you see that in the release of Barabbas, it really is a picture of the gospel of Jesus? Barabbas was guilty of the crime that Jesus was accused of committing. And yet Jesus willingly took the penalty, paid the price for Barabbas' guilt so that Barabbas could then go on and live. That's the gospel. We were guilty because we had chosen the kingdom of the enemy. But yet Jesus took our penalty, our price, and our death so that we could find life in him. See, both throughout the series in Mark, both Mike and I have referenced John 10.10. 10 which is one of my favorite verses in scripture. And in the first half of that verse, Jesus is talking about the enemy and he calls him the thief. And he says, the thief has come to only to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's where our false kings lead us. But there in your note sheet, I put the second half. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. And that they in this category is us. That they may have life and have it to the full. I want you to do something, whether it's on the note sheet or whether it's through the screens, I want you to reread that verse and I want you to take the word they out there and I want you to put your name there. So if it was me, it would read Jesus has come so that Dre may have life and have it to the full. In fact, I want you to reread that a few times with your name in there. Let the word of God wash over you that the reason Jesus came to this world was that so you could have life and have it to the full. See, our world tells us that you don't start to truly live until you have reached some level of success, right? 
Our world tells us that if you lose those things that have defined you, then your life as you know it is over. But that is a lie compared to the truth of Jesus that says things change, kings leave, but Jesus never will. And so when we lose the stuff, we never lose our life because he is king. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about, is it not? The kingdom of God is built on the foundation of resurrection. The kingdom of God is all about Jesus taking dead sinners and giving them life. The kingdom of God is all about Jesus taking people in bondage because of sin and giving them freedom. The kingdom of God is all about giving people life to the full. Now hear me very clearly. Life to the full does not necessarily mean material blessings. Bags of money are not going to start falling out of the sky. Life to the full does not also mean that we are going to live a life free from hardship. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Life to the full means that we are restored and we are able to go home to where we were created to be and that is the presence of Jesus. Life to the full means that we are given back the title that we lost through sin. It means that even though you and I are not perfect, but because of Jesus, you are now a son and daughter of the King. And that is what life is. So the mistake that Pilate made and the trap we, can't, we need to be vigilant about is focusing so much on the cost that we lose out on life. And that's the principle from Pilate. So you know what true life means? We start to live when we give up our authority. See, in our culture, submission is a very negative thing. And often, rightfully so, because many times the people demanding our submission, well, they don't have our care or best interest in heart. But one thing that Jesus was always so good at doing was taking the way the world thought and flipping it upside down. And see, we start to experience true, real, earnest life when we give up our authority and in a glorious act of submission, lay down our swords and say, I am part of the one true king and his kingdom. So the biggest lesson we get from Pilate's life is we can't be people that are focused solely on what we're going to lose because it's going to keep us from experiencing what it is we receive in Jesus, which is life. And so there in your note sheet, I just have one last question to ask you. Is there a cost that's keeping you from fully following Jesus? Is there a cost that's keeping you from fully following Jesus? Christ followers, is there something we're holding on to? Some type of sin? Some area or relationship where we der derive identity from, where we get value from? Is it some type of hurt or fear? Is it something to do with some of our relationships? Is it something that even for many of us, it was not our intention for this to become the ultimate in our life? But if we were to take an honest look in our lives and we see, wow, that is what I base my value on. Is there something we're holding on to that is keeping us from fully embracing the life that Jesus has for us? Or for some of you, is it just giving your life to your king to begin with? Is it just maybe you've heard about Jesus, but maybe you've not understood or maybe you've been resistant because of what it would cost you? But you see through his word that what you get is your life and life to the full. See, the encouragement is not to be perfect because that's not something that's going to happen to us. But we can definitely run harder and faster towards our king we can embrace the fact that we sit in his court and his presence deeper. We can let that overflow into our lives when we're willing to take an honest look and say, I don't want to hold on to this anymore as my identity. I only want Jesus. Because he has come to give you life and life to the full. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on out. And as we close our time together, I want this to be a time where you encounter your king.
I want this to be a time where whether through the songs, whether through you, uh, at the act of prayer, whether even through focusing on some of the scriptures we talk through, let's erase my voice out of the equation. Let's just focus on his and let him talk. Let him encourage, let him speak. Because the great thing about our king is that while he brings up these areas where we may be falling short, he doesn't do it to rub our faces in the dirt, but he does it so we can be even more free to experience the goodness that is Jesus. And so at this time also, our ushers are going to come to receive our offerings, but I want to pray for us as we head in. Father, thank you so much that you are our king. Thank you that you are the one true king. Thank you that life is found in you and you alone. Father, right now, as a church, as the body united, we want to give our false kings back. Father, we place them at your feet. We don't want these things, these people, these situations, these hurts, these fears to be where we find our identity, to be what we expect to give us our salvation. We want that place to be filled by the only one that can, and that's Jesus. And so I pray right now as we enter this time of worship, that it truly be a time where one-on-one -on -one we communicate with you, we encounter you, and we experience this truth that you, Jesus, came to give each and every one of us life and life to the full. In your son's name we pray, amen. You know, yesterday morning, I just found myself reflecting on when I gave my life to the Lord. And it was actually after listening to a teaching similar to this. And they used a verse out of Matthew that in the years since has been one of the verses I hold near and dear to my heart. I just want to share it as we close our time. In Matthew 10:39, Jesus says, whoever finds their life, meaning whoever finds their life in these false kings, will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And so as you leave this place, wherever today or your week takes you, I want to encourage you to do whatever it takes to continually live in the reminder that Jesus came to give you life and life to the full. Amen? Amen. If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place today, over to my right there is a prayer corner with some amazing men and women who would love to pray with you. Next week, you got to come back. Mike's going to be here continuing our series. And we're going to be taking a deep look into, some, into the flogging and some of the torture that Jesus had to endure. Because this is a picture that makes us ask that question, well, why? Why would our king subject himself to something like this? And so Mike, through this passage and also through digging deeper into the New Testament, is going to continually show us why our king cares for us so. So you got to be here. See you then.